Hunger strikers on Chicago's southeast side went 25 days without solid food, protesting against the city from granting General Iron an operating permit. Southeast side is earning another pollutant in their community. That's not acceptable. That is immoral and that's wrong. I'll tell you why protesters put their lives on the line to keep the scrap metal shredding business out of their neighborhood. Coming up, learn about a new talent showcase that continues celebrating Black History Month by highlighting Black multifaceted artists. I'll talk about the four artists and where you can see it. In honor of Women's History Month, the Chronicle staff has compiled a list of books that uniquely represent the female experience. You just might want to add one of these books to your reading list. This is Chronicle Headlines. I'm your host, Paige Barnes. Chicago activists from the southeast side gave up food in an attempt to pressure Mayor Lori Lightfoot and the Chicago Department of Public Health from granting General Iron an operating permit. It wants to move its business from Lincoln Park to the southeast side to open a modern recycling facility. But the company has a history of creating air pollution, with residents saying bits of metal and glass have damaged their lungs. Its Northside facility was shut down in 2020 because of this. Residents in the Southeast Side are primarily Black, Indigenous, and people of color, and are already facing the highest rates of air pollution in the city. Chronicle photojournalist Valentina Pucarelli has been tracking the month-long protest and is here to talk about the fight for clean air. On March 4th, uh, there was a protest done near Lori Lightfoot's house. Um, it was there was uh, some speeches done right in front of the Grace United Methodist Church in Logan Square, where about three hundred people went, and all the strikers and some of the supporters gave speeches, uh, including Gina Rodriguez, which is one of the board members and leaders of the Southeast Environmental Task Force. I wanted to go into what you had mentioned about Yesenia Chavez, who I see right here is an Olive Harvey College student. And she was describing to you about some of the symptoms that she experienced after striking for so long. What did she say? At the March 4th uh, protest, she didn't say this to me directly. She said it to the whole crowd, uh, like the health toll that the hunger strike took on her after 25 days, which is at the end of the day, the reason why they decided to stop the hunger strike. It was not worth dying pretty much. So she talked about how she was having anxiety attacks, headaches, pain, hair loss, weight loss. I think she talked about how she lost at least, I think she said she lost like 14 pounds and how she was scared every time she would go to bed and scared that she wouldn't wake up. One of the things that she said is that she would be afraid of going to sleep every day because she wouldn't think she would wake up, but she said by the grace of the universe, she did. 
That's really powerful. And you took photos as well, um, um, you know, multiple ones in a, in a gallery. And I'm wondering if you can explain and describe them to our listeners what you took photos of. The first picture in the article that I took, that that is Oscar Sanchez, which is has been one of the leading voices of this protest and this campaign in general, not only through the Congress strike, but also he's the co-founder of the Southeast Youth Alliance. So he's been uh, very involved with making sure that the Southeast side gets environmental justice. So in this photo, um, he was just, he was chanting, if I remember correctly, uh, no justice, no peace. And you can also see on the back, uh, other men, Brian Sicto Sanchez holding a day 30 hunger strike, um, who also joined the strike. And I think on March 4th, uh, at the march, he was on day nine of hunger strike. The second photo on the article that you will see all the people laying down, that was uh, right in front of the church near Lloyd Lightfoot's house. And what they did is they asked everyone to lay down on the floor and stay there for at least a minute in respect of all the people that had lost. And you can see in the back, um, there's a sign that says, we deserve clean air. I don't know if you can see it completely in the, in the photo, but that's a sign where with a map with all with nails for each of the days that each of the hunger strikers struck for all the days that they went without food. I'm curious to know, because the strike happened over a span of a month, how did people, you know, strike and go about their daily lives? Did they go back home every day? Did they sleep outside? What did they do to keep up the fight? During the whole strike, each of them each of them were at their houses with their families and they all like like had to keep working. They all had to like keep, uh, you know, Melanie Flores as a mom and they all have families that they needed to, if not support financially, at least, you know, be around, take care of them. And somehow they all just kept doing their day-to-day jobs, um, like being with their families. Um, so the strike, even though it was something really important that they were doing they they were still doing their day-to-day normal lives of being a parent of working going to school earlier you had said that the strikers stopped the strike because they were just they they couldn't continue on anymore however it it made a dent it made an impact and so now i'm wondering what are the next steps on their end or even on the city of Chicago's end because of this protest? Even though the hunger strike didn't achieve the denying of the permit that they were hoping for, eventually it will. It would be the reason why the permit will be denied, which I'm, hope, which I'm really hopeful it will, because it got all the support. The other day, um, I think it was around 300 doctors that sent out a letter to the city with their support to this to this campaign. So even though the hunger strike may seem like the main thing that they've done and the first thing that they've done to make sure that General Iron doesn't move to the Southeast side, this campaign has going on for a long time and it will continue until they get justice. And they're committed to, to that. They're gonna keep campaigning on social media 
um, and I've been seeing that because I follow all of the strikers and I follow the, the official Chicago Hunger Strike Instagram and every day they keep posting things and updates. So one of the things that, one of the good things that has happened since the strike ended is they have delayed the, um, the approval of the permit at least. We still don't know if the permit is gonna get approved or not, although I'm hopeful it will, but they keep delaying it. They keep delaying it, they keep delaying it. Um, I think it was last year that other woman, Garza, uh, the 10th Ward, other person, she did ask last year the Illinois Environmental Protection Agency to delay the permit. And at that time she was rejected. Um, and you know, the strikers are not a fan of Garza because she hasn't fully supported them and has been pretty silent about this issue. But um, now luckily, even not with for not because of her, but because of the strike and because of the commitment of the strikers and all the supporters that they've gained, the city has announced that the permit will be delayed. Thank you very much, Valentina. I look forward to a follow-up article, um, and I hope you write one for sure. To read Valentina's full article, you can go to columbiachronicle.com. Columbia's Student Diversity and Inclusion's talent showcase, Black Souls Welcome, provides a space for Black artists to explore and celebrate being Black in America. The exhibit sets the stage for four artists to share their perspective through various mediums. The showcase continues SDI's and students' effort to collaborate every February for Black History Month. Joining us now is Anna Busalaki to tell us about the exhibits and the stories behind them. I was able to interview one of the organizers, Angel Page Smogowski, and they work for student diversity and inclusion and have since their sophomore year. Um, and this was uh, their idea to continue the celebration of Black History Month. Although there is a pandemic, uh, normally they do big events in February, and this was their way of continuing that safely and social distanced. Was it only one person who organized this, or who else student-wise from SDI's office helped? There were a few people that I was not able to interview, um, but Isaiah Moore, um, I was able to interview them. Uh, and they really helped with a lot of the behind the scenes stuff and the media coverage. Um, and uh, there was one other student as well. Um, I don't know their last name, uh, but they also um, were like an assistive creative, assistant creative director um, with this as well. And then Angel Page Smigelski was also one of the artists showcased along with organizing it. So that was really cool. Can you <laughs> tell me more about then what did Smigelski contribute? Magelski uh, contributed an exhibit called 70th and Troop, and uh, it was a poetry exhibit, uh, really inspired by her grandmother um, and a lot of her personal experience and what she wanted to share with students and just uh, the Columbia community that would be viewing this. They said that their grandmother is like their favorite person to exist on this planet. So I thought that was really heartwarming to to see. Did you get a chance to go in person to see all of these exhibits? I was able to see one of the photography exhibits on the student center and the rest of the exhibits I was able to view virtually, which was really cool 
because Isaiah Moore did a lot of the virtual recording for this. And it was as if you were there in person. It was very well done. And what a cool thing to have anyone from anywhere in the country be able to view this, uh, our exhibit. The sources that you interviewed who also contributed to this exhibit, can you tell me more about what they shared with you about their work? One of the other artists that was showcased, uh, her name is Jordan Mundy, and she had a fashion exhibit that was also a mix of modeling and some other mediums like uh, photography and video. Her exhibit was called Be Yourself, and it was really just about embracing individuality. She's also uh, the president of Picture Perfect Modeling Club at Columbia, so there were some unreleased fashion films uh, of some members in the club that were also incorporated in her exhibit, um, as well as um, really unique fashion pieces. Another uh, artist that was showcased, uh, her name is Philanese Brooks. She had a photography exhibit um, and she named it Black Joy. When I asked her how she got this idea, she said, I based it around just asking Black bodies in my life what Black joy meant to them. Um, and she said she got a lot of like being with family and laughing together and talking uh, together. And that's what she based her whole concept of the exhibit around. Why is Black Souls Welcome important to have? I think it's really important, not only during Black History Month, but every month to showcase Black artists, especially that don't get spotlights very often. Um, And I think Angel put it really well when they said that they want to make sure that artists in different mediums get to experience showcases as well. And they specifically chose women identifying or non-binary artists to highlight um, because they also felt that that was an area that was lacking in representation. Where can people go to see this showcase? People can view this exhibit, the Student Center at 754 South Wabash, uh, the second floor of 618 South Michigan, and at the Student Diversity and Inclusion Office on the fourth floor of 618 South Michigan Avenue. How long will it be up? Until March 31st, so there's still time. Thank you very much. I look forward to seeing this exhibit when I go back to campus. You can read the full story at columbiachronicle.com. March is Women's History Month, and what better way to celebrate it by reading books about women by women? The Chronicle's female-identifying staff members have curated a list to educate yourself on the unique challenges women face every day. One book in particular is Cinderella is Dead by Kaylin Bayron. It retells the story of Cinderella 200 years later. Cinderella has found her prince, but the fairy tale is far from over. Teen girls have to go to the annual ball to be selected for marriage by the men of the kingdom, but 16-year-old Sophia would rather marry her best friend Aaron. In a desperate move, Sophia flees, vowing to bring down the king once and for all. Joining us now is the person who suggested this book, staff reporter Aaron Threlkeld. I was looking for some fantasy books that dealt with kind of fractured fairy tales, and so what I ended up finding was that Cinderella is dead, but it was also partially looking for fantasy that included people of color or, you know, 
people who are identified as marginalized people from our world. And so I was doing that as kind of some informal research for my thesis. And that's how I came across it. Are you glad that you picked it up? I am glad that I picked it up. Yes, it was a good read. What is your favorite part about it? What is your least favorite part? Something to not spoil it, but to keep us interested. So my favorite part is that it has female empowerment in it. And it's also gender inclusive or inclusive to the LGBT community. I realize that, um, you know, that's nice of the thinking of that audience. But what I didn't like about it was just in some ways how it made so real the issues of gender inequality and tyranny just ever present because of the political climate at the time that I was reading it. So it was just kind of a stark reminder of the nightmare going on in real life. And I'm curious, when did you read the book? So I read the book, I would say, over this past winter. Why do you think it is important for people to read this book? I think it's important for people to read the book because multiple things. So I think it's good for people to see representation in sci-fi and sci-fi that doesn't only just have problems unique to the world that's created, but it allows you in some ways to submerge into these problems and then have be able to say, I could step back and I'm glad we aren't dealing with problems like that. But then it does make you think, oh, well, we do have these problems on this scale. So in some way, it kind of gives you a buffer to emerge in it, but then also be able to make it palatable. I'm also interested in knowing why did you select this book to share with others than any other book that you've read that has to deal with women and women empowerment? Well, another reason that I chose this one to share is because I thought it was also creative how it took Cinderella is one of the oldest, I would say, of fairy tales where there's a knight in shining armor, there's a prince charming that, other, that in some ways ultimately helps save her. But then it makes you look at the roles of the women and it turns that upside down, you know, the women who are at play and this idea that she got this fairy tale ending and going to a ball and everything. Usually people think of it as a good thing or a fun experience, but that it took something like a ball and made it a nightmare. And I think that takes creativity to be able to do that. Are there any books that you are currently reading right now that you would recommend to our listeners right now? I would recommend the memoirs of Catherine the Great. I started watching after the show or started reading after the show The Great. It can seem kind of boring if you're not into history because it's not in narrative form, but it's important to learn about how this woman, the woman was put in this position in history as a monarch and putting up. Um, arranged marriage that was unhappy, but how she was able to strategize and able to make herself a czarina and a really prominent female monarch of the time. I would say it was about 1700, 1600. So I'd recommend that. Another book I like, although it's not necessarily about women's empowerment, is To All the Boys I Loved Before. That's another book I'm reading because I like the way in which it helps conceptualize women in romance or the perceptions of romance. It's not necessarily, I wouldn't say it's overly cliche in treating women as young, whimsical, and just emotional-led beings, but it shows 
you know, um, how relationships are formed, how attachment, how you process things like, such as grief and an identity um, and um, ethnic identity, as well as realizing um, when you are feeling romantic feelings for another person and getting in touch with um, your emotions. So essentially emotional literacy. Thank you very much, Erin, for talking to me about Cinderella is Dead by Kaylin Byron. You can read the full list of the Chronicle's top books for Women's History Month at ColumbiaChronicle.com. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Chronicle Headlines. You can check out all these stories and more at ColumbiaChronicle.com. For additional coverage, we are at CC Chronicle on Instagram and Twitter. Chronicle Headlines is made possible by a collaboration with the staff of the Columbia Chronicle and WCRX-FM, Chicago's Underground. Under the leadership of Suzanne McBride, Chair of the Communication Department at Columbia College Chicago. Until next time, I'm your host, Paige Barnes. <laughs>